Hey folks, you're listening to an episode of Cultural Lenses, a show about life from the perspective of an Indian man who grew up in the Middle East and is now living in Canada. Cultural Lenses is hosted by Nikhil Chodimela, otherwise known as LR11, or more simply as LR. The theme song of Cultural Lenses was made by good friends of LR, Revelries. You can find them on Spotify and also on Twitter at Revelries Music. And finally, to keep up with LR and all of what he does, make sure you follow him on Twitter at LRThe11th, on Instagram at LR11, and on Twitch, where he occasionally streams at twitch.tv slash LR11. Enjoy the show. Cultural Lenses. This is episode 31, and I'm your host, Nikhil Chodimelo, otherwise known as LR11, and I introduced myself again for the second time this time this week. You would have heard that intro by the wonderful Glenn Houston. Uh, Glenn with two ends, Houston spelled like Huston in my opening, that little bit that he recorded for me. You can find him in all the places that he is on the internet in the description. And welcome back for part three of our Black History Month special. So a couple of things before we go into this episode. This episode is going to be about the Underground Rail Railroad. I can't speak today. The Underground Railroad. Um, and we're going to be uh, talking about Harriet Tubman. Uh, finally getting around to this. Um, number two, to all of my friends in, in Texas and other parts of the states that are getting hit pretty hard by the uh, by the Arctic winds, by the supremely cold weather, please stay safe. Take care of yourselves. I, I'm wishing and praying and hoping for the best of y'all, sending my energy. Um, it is not an easy time. This is definitely not a time for any of us to be making jokes about, oh yeah, you think it's cold for you? Well, imagine this. The, these are cities, uh, states being affected by weather that they don't have the infrastructure for. They're not able to handle it and they are struggling. Um, please uh, be considerate uh, because... It's one thing to make a joke about what the difference is when it's off by a couple of degrees and people just have to put on maybe an extra jacket or take off an extra layer of clothing. Uh, it's com- something completely else when people are out of power, wa- uh, water pipes are frozen, they don't have access to heat or electricity or water, cell phone receptions is going down. The only way they can stay warm is by turning on the car. Um, please, uh, sending all of my, please be considerate and I'm sending all my uh, positive energy um towards all of you um if there's anything better that i can do please reach out to me and let me know um the other thing i wanted to talk about was how crazy it is that generally speaking when white people do something 
aggressive. It's seen as them just expressing themselves and their emotions. But when people of color, primarily black people, do some do the same thing um, that a white person would, it is seen as hostile and dangerous. And uh, obviously here I'm referencing uh, what happened earlier this week, a couple of days ago. I'm a bit wonky on the timeline. But um, when uh, we're talking about Serena Williams, uh, when she was facing, uh, Sa- what's her name? Sabalenka. Uh, Ar- Arena Sabalenka. And that's her name. Uh, Arena Sabalenka was uh, clearly frustrated at one point during the match and threw a racket to the ground and uh, had a little bit of an outburst. Which which happens in competitive environments. It really does. It, it normally does. Uh, especially with so much riding on the line when it's your career. When it's your thing, when it's the thing you're known to be good for and you're getting absolutely destroyed. Um, outbursts like that happened, you know. Um, nobody was injured. Sure, the racket might have been damaged, but you can buy a new racket. Not a big deal. The The main thing is, uh, the biggest difference is when uh, Serena did something similar, a racist character, like racist, uh, a cartoon was made of her uh, where she was drawn in very... The caricature of her was not very nice. It was supremely racist. Yet here when Sabalenka did it, he's like, oh, is she okay? She'll be fine. And this is also more, I, I would like to say, uh, from the public, from from the tennis enthusiasts. Um, although I do know or I do remember that from uh, Serena Williams' case, it was uh, there was some um, issues with the referee then too. But anyways, all I'm trying to say is that... Um, black people just can't live they just can't they're, they're, they're just not allowed to be them themselves they're just not allowed to exist they're not allowed to be human they're there's you know like minorities people of color but black people especially are meant to or thought or expected to keep everything in to be the stronger one to be the better one why the fuck for why can't why can't they be normal? Like, every, why can't they express things the way that everybody else is expressing, or in those similar ways? I, racist racism is is alive and well. And whenever I talk about racism, and I, um, it, it is very much alive and well between all sorts of people from, um, all sorts of mixed backgrounds. Uh, but that doesn't mean just because I talk about the shit that black people are dealing with because I live in North America and that's the main prevalent issue here doesn't take anything away from other racist shit happening worldwide uh, or in other parts of the world uh, you can talk about different um, things without invalidating other things and fight you know you can fight <laughs> you, you can't fight everything all at once You you have to fight one thing at a time typically at least you have to put all your energy behind one thing at a time to truly make an effect or difference there um this was spurred from a conversation i had a long time ago with somebody about how why i'm not so concerned about racism happening to indians and in other parts of the world well or like within india well i'm like i've never lived in india uh there's not very much connection i have to india And, and also in comparison to what black people are dealing with racism towards indians are not it's not as emergent it's not as pressing 
sure, there's some really shitty stories and some really shitty things happening, but at the very least, I could go on a jog with my hoodie up and I'd probably live, you know? Um, and uh, the last thing before we get into this episode is that black history is American history. Um, I'm reminding, it's a, just a general reminder of, of the fact that so many, so much of what we have, media, culture, innovations, societies, organizations, came from black people, especially out here in North America. And their history, their plight, their struggles, everything they've gone through is American history and it should be an integral, integral part of what is thought and not celebrated purely during one month. Uh, that being said, I f uh, feel like it's my... Uh, turn to elevate and highlight and um, raise up other voices, which is why I'm, I'm participating in Black History Month. But I, I, I am a strong believer that this shouldn't all be um, reserved. <laughs> like there shouldn't be one month that too, the shortest month for uh, Black History. Um, so anyways, the Underground Railroad, I shit you not. Um, growing up in the other side of the world, hearing about the Underground Railroad every now and then, it was not something I studied. Um, I genuinely thought it was an actual railroad, some sort of uh, abandoned line that people use as a guideline, or like as, as waypoints or as like a navigation, if you will, to um, do what they did, which I didn't really know too much about. Um, today's information is going to be coming from the Canadian Encyclopedia and History.com. Some other tidbits from uh, other places. Um, and today is also going to be one of those episodes where I will be speaking a little bit more directly from these articles purely because um, these are not topics for me to do half-assed work and sit and tell you about it and give you my opinion about it. These are very important details, uh, very important historical events that have happened, that have taken place, um, and they... These people uh, who've written these articles have done done their due diligence. Uh, they've made it easy for people like me to kind of just sit here and read it off. Um, but again, this is my turn to elevate and and echo and support the the reality of other people. The Underground Railroad was a secret network of abolitionists. Um, they helped African-Americans escape from enslavement in the American South to free northern states or to Canada. The Underground Railroad was the largest anti-slavery freedom movement in North America. It bought between 30,000 and 40,000 fugitives to British North America, which is now Canada. Um, so, bare details. Let's see. That's about Harriet Tubman. Um, it developed as a convergence of several different clandestine efforts. The exact dates of its existence are not known, but it operated from the late 18th century to the Civil War, at which point its efforts continued to undermine the Confederacy in a less secretive fashions, fashion. The Okay, so I wonder if this is Quaker or Quacker. The Quakers are considered the first organized group to actively help escaped enslaved people. George Washington complained in 1786 that Quakers had attempted to liberate one of his enslaved workers. In the early 1800s, Quaker abolitionist Isaac T. Hopper 
set up a network in Philadelphia that helped enslaved people on the run. At the same time, Quakers in North Carolina established abolitionist groups that laid the groundwork for routes and shelters for escapees. The African Methodist Episcopal Church established in 1816 was another proactive religious group helping fugitive enslaved people. Um, all of this started because a provision in the 1793 Act to Limit Slavery stated that any enslaved person who reached Upper Canada became free upon arrival. This encouraged a small number of enslaved African Americans in search of freedom to enter Canada, primarily without help. Word that freedom could be had in Canada spread further following the War of 1812. The enslaved servants of U.S. military officers from the South brought back word that there were free black men in red coats in British North America. Arrivals of freedom seekers in Upper Canada increased dramatically after 1850 with the passage of the American Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, this uh, slave act um, gave, uh, what do you call it? Uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was designed to strengthen the previous law, which was felt by southern states to be inadequately enforced. This update created harsher penalties and set up a system of commissioners that promoted favoritism towards owners of enslaved people and led to some formerly enslaved people being recaptured. For an escaped person, the northern states the northern states were still considered a risk. Meanwhile, Canada offered black people the freedom to live where they wanted, sit on juries, run for public office, and more, and efforts at extradition had largely failed. Some underground railroad operators based themselves in Canada and worked to help the arriving fugitives settle in. I apologize today. My, uh, I've, I've, I've had a day. <laughs> and uh, something that's leaking into my speech, where I don't have my speech voice. Uh, the Underground Railroad was created in the early 19th century by a group of abolitionists based, based mainly in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Within a few decades, it had grown into a well-organized and dynamic network. The term Underground Railroad began to be used in the 1830s. By then, an informal covert network to help fugitive slaves had already taken shape. It wasn't an actual ra railroad and it did not run on railway tracks. It was a complex, clandestine network of people in safe houses that helped persons enslaved in southern plantations reach freedom in the north. The network was maintained by abolitionists who were committed to human rights and equality. They offered help to freeing slaves, and their ranks included free blacks, fellow enslaved persons, white and, indi and indigenous sympathizers, Quakers, Methodists, Baptists, inhabitants of urban centers, in urban center and farmers, men and women, Americans and Canadians. Um, this was pretty interesting to read a little bit of like a side bit to this article, but rail railroad terminology and symbols were used to mask the covert activities of the network. This also helped to keep the public and slaveholders in the dark. Those who helped escaping slaves in the journey were called conductors. They guided fugitives along points of the Underground Railroad using various modes of transportation over land or by water. The terms passengers, cargo, package, and freight referred to escaped slaves. Passengers were delivered to stations or depots, which were safe houses. Stations were located in various cities and towns known as terminals. These places of temporary refuge could sometimes be identified by lit candles in windows or by strategically placed lanterns in the front yard. Safe houses were operated by station masters. 
They took fugitives into their homes and provided meals, a change of clothing, and a place to rest and hide. They often gave them money before sending them to the next transfer point. Black abolitionist William Still was in charge of a station in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He assisted many freedom seekers in their journey to Canada, and he recorded the names of the men, women, and children who stopped at his station, including Tubman and her passengers. And we're going to get back to Harriet Tubman in a second. Uh, Germaine Logan was another black station master and leader in the abolitionist movement. He ran a station in Syracuse, New York. He permanently settled there after living freely in Hamilton and St. Catharines, Upper Canada, from 1837 to 1841. Logan was well known for his public speeches and articles in anti-slavery newspapers. Uh, numerous women were also masters, uh, also station masters. Quaker women Lucretia, Lucretia Mott and Laura Havland. And Henrietta Bowers Duterte, du, that to me looks like Duterte. The first black female undertaker in Philadelphia are just a few. Many other women also worked with their husbands to operate stations. Um, and here they have, a, which is really cool, they have a clipping from um, the Provincial Freeman newspaper, circa 1850s. The Underground Railroad, a good business. We understand that the train on this road arrived yesterday with 16 passengers, all in good condition. The number which took the cars uh, at start was 21. Five of, them, five of them, however, stopped at way stations. We were glad to learn that the Underground Road is doing a large and safe business. It carries, in the course of a 12-month, large numbers from slavery to freedom, from oppression to liberty. Those who arrived here yesterday have been furnished with uh, through tickets. I think that's what it says. All uh, pursuit of them by slaveholders or sympathizers will be unavailing. They are beyond the reach of further oppression. Um, that's really cool. Um, they had ways of um, communicating um, and keeping track of things, which, like, it's probably one of those... Um, and see, I don't know enough about history to say it's akin to anything, but these are a group of people escaping oppression. Um, it's, it's, it's sad that that was even needed. And honestly, this wasn't even that long ago. This was, what, less than 200 years ago? Uh, you know, if it started, let's say, in the 1850s, let's use that as our starting point. Um uh, 1850, so that's what, 150 years would bring us to 2000, 171 years ago. And to this day, we're still fighting the fight. Ticket agents coordinated safe trips and made travel arrangements for freedom seekers by helping them to contact station masters or conductors. Ticket agents were sometimes people who traveled for a living, perhaps as circuit preachers or doctors. This enabled them to con conceal their abolitionist activities. The Belleville... Born Dr. Alexander Milton Ross, for instance, was an Underground Railroad agent. He used his bird-watching hobby as a cover while he traveled through the South, telling enslaved people about the network. He even provided them with a few simple supplies to begin their escape. People who donated money or supplies to aid in the escape of slaves were called stockholders. Interesting. Um, and here's the actual, like nitty-gritty details about the ways to the promised land. The routes that were traveled to get to freedom were called lines. Uh, the network of routes went through 14 northern states, which is interesting, actually, before I continue with that. Um, 
they're using very like train heavy lingo like anything associated you know we've got station masters we've got ticket agents uh lines being the routes that they took um passengers being referred to as freight or cargo obviously helped them uh conceal what they were doing and and how uh to be able to safely communicate to the public what or to other slaves in the presence of you know the normal public what's going on how do you get to there like you know get from here to there um it's very simple um i don't know how much uh, something like that would fly now probably better than people might expect because people don't really pay attention to their surroundings so much but this was a time where like technology was just kind of like thriving so throwing around lingo associated with something that most people wouldn't probably be using then just yet or people have been you know trains were common use at that point i I don't know but it's interesting that um it was it was it was it's very organized and well thought out reading about this now the number, network of routes went through 14 northern states and two British North American colonies, Upper Canada and Lower Canada. At the, at the end of the line was Heaven, or the Promised Land, which was free land in Canada or the northern states. The Drinking Gourd re- referenced the Big, Dim- the Big Dipper constellation, which, which points to the North Star. That was so fucking hard to get through, I apologize. A lodestar for freedom seekers finding their way north. The journey was very dangerous. Many made the treacherous voyage by foot. Freedom seekers were also transported in wagons, carriages, on horses, and in some cases by train. But the Underground Railroad did not only operate over land. Passengers also traveled by boat across lakes, seas, and rivers. They often traveled by night and rested during the day. And now this is is where it gets interesting... um, um, because this is uh, from the Canadian Encyclopedia, so this is talking about the impact also that the railroad had on um, Canadian population, because an estimated of thirty to 40,000 freedom seekers entered Canada during the last decades of, of enslavement in the U.S. Between 1850 and 1860 alone, 15,000 to 20,000 fugitives reached the province of Canada. It became the main terminus of the Underground Railroad. The new mu- newcomers migrated to various parts of what is now Ontario. This included Niagara Falls, Buxton, Chatham, Owen Sound, Windsor Sandwich, Hamilton, Brantford, Brantford, London, Oakville, and Toronto. They also fled to other regions of British North America, such as New Brunswick, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. After this mass migration, black Canadians helped build strong communities and contributed to the development of the provinces in which they lived and worked. Um, early African Canadian settlers were productive and innovative citizens. They cleared and cultivated the land, built homes, and raised families. Black persons established a range of religious, educational, social, and cultural institutions, political groups, and community-building organizations. They founded churches, schools, benevolent societies, fraternal organizations, and two newspapers. During the era of the Underground Railroad, black men and women possessed and contributed a wide range of skills and abilities. They operated various businesses such as grocery stores, boutiques and hat shops, blacksmith shops, a saw company and ice company, a livery stables, livery stables, pharmacies, uh, herbal treatment services and carpentry businesses, as well as Toronto's first taxi companies. 
They were active when fighting for racial equality. Uh, their communities were centers for abolitionist activities. And uh, closer to home, they waged attacks against the prejudice and discrimination they encountered in their daily lives in Canada by finding gainful employment, securing housing, and obtaining an education for their children. Wherever African Canadians settled in British North America, they contributed to the socio-economic growth of the communities in which they lived. In their quest for freedom, security, prosperity, and human rights, early black colonists strived to make a better life for themselves, their descendants, and their fellow citizens. They left behind an enduring and rich legacy that is evident to this day. And the fantastic fucking thing about this article is that the word black, when talking about black people, is in capital B. Because that's what it fucking should be. Let's go. Um, but that's about the Underground Railroad. Um, a, a An operation that went over many decades in helping run by abolitionists using code to help free people from uh, oppression, from enslavement, from the horrible laws uh, that were passed, from the horrible ways that they were treated. Um, but now we're going to go on Terry Tubman, who was one of the most prominent abolitionists. She led hundreds of enslaved people to freedom along the route of the Underground Railroad. Um, born into slavery in Maryland, Harriet Tubman escaped to freedom in the North in 1849 to become the most famous conductor on the Underground Railroad. Tubman risked her life to lead hundreds of family members and other slaves from the plantation system to freedom on this elaborate secret network of safe houses. A leading abolitionist before the American Civil War, Tubman also helped the Union Army during the war, working as a spy, among other roles. After the Civil War ended, Tubman dedicated her life to improving, to helping impoverished former slaves and the elderly. Elderly. In honor of her life and by popular demand in 2016, the U.S. Treasury Department announced that Tubman will replace Andrew Jackson on the center of a new $20 bill. Originally named Araminta Harriet Ross, Tubman was nicknamed Minty by her parents. Araminta changed her name to Harriet around the time of her marriage, possibly to honor her mother. Tubman's early life was full of hardship. Mary Brodus's son, Edward, sold three of Tubman's sisters to distant plantations, severing the family. When a trader from Georgia approached Brodus about buying Ritt's youngest son, Moses, Ritt successfully resisted the further fracturing of her family, setting a new powerful setting a powerful example for her young daughter. Physical violence was a part of daily life for Tubman and her family. The violence she suffered early in life caused permanent physical injuries. Tubman later recounted a particular day when she was lashed five times before breakfast. She carried the scars for the rest of her life. The most severe injury occurred when Tubman was an adolescent. Sent to a dry goods store for supplies, she encountered a slave who had left the fields without permission. The man's overseer demanded that Tubman help restrain the runaway. When Tubman refused, the overseer threw a two-pound weight that struck her in the head. Tubman endured seizures, severe headaches, and narcoleptic episodes for the rest of her life. She also experienced intense dream states, which she classified as religious experiences. In 1844, Harriet married a free black man named John Tubman. At the time, around half of the African-American people on the eastern shore of Maryland were free and was not unusual for a family to include both free and enslaved people. Little is known about John or his marriage to Harriet, including whether and how long they lived together. 
Any children they might have had would have been considered enslaved since the mother's status dictated that any, that of any offspring. John declined to make the voyage on the Underground Railroad with Harriet, preferring to stay in Maryland with a new wife. So basically, this motherfucker who was free um, married this lady. Uh, see, I, I can't even be, like, upset or or too judgmental because I can... I can only, you know, even as it is now, you you make the wrong decision or the or decision perceived as wrong by other people. You make the wrong move, you say the wrong thing, and you could end up dead despite being free. Uh, I feel like the word free in 1844 it has the same connotations as the word free right now in America. Um but between 1850 and 1860, Tubman made 19 trips from south to, excuse me, from the south to the north, following the network known as the Underground Railroad. Oh, excuse me. She guided more than 300 people, including her parents and several siblings, from slavery to freedom, earning the nickname Moses for her leadership. She first encountered the Underground Railroad when she used it to escape slavery herself in 1849. Following a bout of illness and the death of her owner, Tubman decided to escape slavery, slavery in Maryland for Philadelphia. She feared that her family would be further severed and was concerned for her own fate as a sickly slave of low economic value. Two of her brothers, Ben and Harry, accompanied her on September 17, 1849. However, after a notice was published in the Cambridge Democrat offering a $300 reward for the return of Araminta, Harry, and Ben, had second thoughts and returned to the plantation. Tubman had no plans to remain in bondage. Seeing her brother safely home, she soon set off alone for uh, Pennsylvania. Making use of the Underground Railroad, Tubman traveled nearly 90 miles to Philadelphia. She crossed into the free state of Pennsylvania with a feeling of relief and awe and recalled later, when I found I, crossed, I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the tr trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Rather than remaining in safety of the north, she made it her decision, and her she made a decision in her mission to rescue her family and others living living in slavery w via the Underground Railroad. In eighteen fifty, December of eighteen fifty, she received a warning that her niece Kasaya was going to be sold along with her two young children. Kasai's husband, a free black man named John Boley, made the winning bid for his wife at an auction in Baltimore. Tubman then helped the entire family make the journey to Philadelphia. The dynamics of escaping slavery changed in 1850 with the passage of the, fugi with the, passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. This law stated that escaped slaves could be captured in the North and returned to slavery, leading to the abduction of former slaves and free black people living in free states. Law enforcement officials in the North were compelled to aid in the capture of slaves regardless of their personal principles. In response to the law, Tubman rerouted the Underground Railroad to Canada, which prohibited slavery categorically. In December 1851, Tubman guided a group of 11 fugitives northward. There is evidence to suggest that the party stopped at the home of abolitionist and former slave Frederick Douglass. And and it goes on to. She goes she goes on to to save so many people, and she's been doing this for so many years. She started 
1851 to, you know, 1858, um, in 1858, she was introduced to the abolitionist John Brown, who advocated the use of violence to disrupt and destroy the institution of slavery. Tubman shared Brown's goals and at least tolerated his methods. And she claimed to have a to have had a prophetic vision of Brown before they met. When Brown began recruiting supporters for an attack on slaveholders at Harper's Ferry, he turned to General Tubman for help. After Brown's subsequent execution, Tubman praised him as a martyr. Tubman remained active during the Civil War, working for the Union Army as a cook and nurse. And she be quickly became an armed scout and spy. She is the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. She guided the Combahee River raid, which liberated more than 700 slaves in South Carolina. In early 1859, abolitionist Senator William H. Seward sold Tubman a small piece of land on the outskirts of Auburn, New York. The land in Auburn became a haven for Tubman's family and friends. She spent the years uh, following the war on this property, tending to her family and others who had taken up residence. Despite her fame and reputation, she was never financially secure. Uh, Tubman's friends were and supporters were able to raise some funds to support her. One admirer, Sarah H. Bradford, wrote a biography entitled Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, with the proceeds going to Tubman and her family. Tubman continued to give freely in spite of her economic woes. In 1903, she donated a parcel, parcel of her land to the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Auburn. The Harriet Tubman Home for the Aged opened on this site in 1908. Tubman died of pneumonia on March 10th, March 10th. 1913, surrounded by friends and family at around the age of 93. As Tubman aged, the head injury sustained early in her life became more painful and disruptive. She underwent brain surgery at Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital to alleviate the pains and buzzing she experienced regularly. Tubman was eventually admitted into the rest home named in her honor. She was buried with military honors at Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn. Oh boy. And here's a quote from her. I had reasoned this out in my mind. There was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I could not have one, I would have the other. Ooh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's insane how much history is just lost how do I, how do I word this um, these were these were real peoples people <laughs> these were real people these were real things that happened these were real things that are still happening and people are choosing to not include this in regular teaching for I think the the, the most idiotic reason would be because, because to avoid making people uncomfortable or that kids don't need to know this. Kids need to know this. The newer generations need to understand what kind of world they're entering. They're not stupid. Kids learn a lot just by seeing and observing their environment. They're going to realize the way we treat other people just because of the shade of their skin. They're going to realize that very quickly. And and these are the things that 
need to be addressed early on. They need to be thought early on and explained to early on that the differences in people, be it personalities, likes, dislikes, skin, uh, you know, uh, gender, how they identify, sexual preference, or reasons to be appreciated. Those differences are there to be appreciated and celebrated and is what makes us human. Because just like with food, um, a variety of spices in the right combination makes the food taste good. You know, it's a very, uh, I, I, it's it's a simple, simpler, simple a- analogy to help you understand or to help people understand that our differences are, are points of appreciation, not points of discrimination or superiority. Um, uh, I am enjoying learning about the very important historical figures that exist in American history, specifically black people the black historical leaders and figures, learning about them, um, it feels a little bit different from like learning about World War I or World War II. This is, these are people fighting to exist. Um, Not that these haven't happened in big world wars or conflicts within other countries, but being here in North America, being around people who, who... deal with these struggles and then learning about their roots their foundations the the legacy that they're carrying on feels special um and it's a part of what i want to do to be able to educate myself to be able to carry forward that fight and help support them and so i really i really hope that something from from my self-exploration and me recording my self-exploration. Sure, I'm putting out episodes and I'm putting out content, I'm putting out a product, but really this is self-exploration. Not self-exploration, but self-learning. I'm exploring the the reality of the situation, the history of the situation to better understand what we can do now and how I can help better and how I can be a better ally for the people who need it. And, And I hope somebody is taking something away from this so thank you very much for listening this was episode 31 we're going to close out black history month with uh um sister rosetta tharp uh shit i mispronounced that name no i pronounced it right sister rosetta tharp the the grandmother of rock and roll thank you very much for listening have a blessed week friends in texas please stay safe remember to lead with compassion wear a mask stay hydrated And uh, I love you all. Bye.